Welcome to the second series of Tuning into the Forest. My name is Estefania Milla Moreno. I go by she and her, and I'll be hosting conversations around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in nature. I want to start by acknowledging that this episode is being recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Maskian people. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Diviani Sain, a postdoctoral fellow working on international energy and climate policy, about climate change, just energy transitions, and her influence as a queer woman of color running as political candidate in the 2020 VC elections. Hi, Deviani, how are you doing? I'm doing good today, and thanks for having me on, Estefania. It's uh, really nice to be here. Thank you so much. We are so thrilled to, to get to know more about your research and also about you. It has been a, quite an intense year in many fronts. What has been, you know, the biggest challenge and also the biggest positive experience uh, out of this last year for you? Well, I mean... It has, it's definitely been a challenge to, you know, get used to being home, working from home. But I think that is, has not been as big a problem because, you know, being academics and, you know, being a PhD student or having, being a postdoc, we've been very flexible on time and space and where we work. And, you know, especially when I was traveling for field work a lot during um, my PhD, I had to work remotely for months at a time. And so I don't think it was uh, that as much as, um, I think just the, um, lack of like the socializing and interaction with colleagues and um, lab mates, which usually uh, helped, you know, come up with more research ideas. And so I think uh, that was a challenge to how to still have that engagement with people in a safe uh, manner. Um, but in terms of rewards, I think it's also, um, well, I, when the COVID happened, I wasn't supposed to technically be in Vancouver, but I ended up being in Vancouver and that really helped me because it really, it brought me back to, where I know people and it helped open up a lot of other opportunities for me, uh, for work, for networking, and in terms of career and and in places where I had never thought like getting involved with, um, you know, a lot of politics. So I think that's uh, been a very interesting change for me over the pandemic. That's that's amazing to hear. And, and we're going to get to that, to your uh, political <laughs> career as well. But before I, I would like to ask you how was growing up uh, for you and if you have any fond memories about nature, like when did you start to develop that sense of uh, awareness uh, about nature around you? I mean, for me, I feel like nature was always 
a part of me. Um, it's because I grew up and we have a family house in the Indian Himalayas. And, and so all our vacations, all the holidays, all my summers were spent up there. And it's in the middle of a forest. We have a view of the Himalayan snow peaks, like almost 500 kilometers when you wake up. It's really pretty. And, you know, in the spring, you have these chestnut trees where all these beautiful neon colored little finches come. And I think that was just uh, it, you know, growing up and in this forest and this amazing um, Himalayan ecosystem, which is so unique in the world. And then, you know, just seeing the impacts of climate change back in the 80s and 90s on these forests, where I think ever since I was like 11 or 12 years old, I haven't seen those birds and they've probably gone extinct. I don't even know their, because I was young, I didn't even know their like their name, like their real name. So I can't even look up if they went extinct or to higher elevations. And so I think this connection with nature really started then. And I've always had, uh, you know, pets up there. And so I've really been connected with nature. So it is not a surprise that I ended up uh, having a career in trying to protect those very ecosystems. Um, I think it was always just a part of me. No, that's, that's amazing. So I want to know, um, you know, when you were going from that connection that you have with uh, birds and trees, when did that somewhat connected with how they, how people live and cook and, you know, uh, and, and their livelihoods attached to the natural resources and adding to the context of climate change, which I feel like is like so big, uh, but also so urgent and important. Yeah, and that's interesting. So when, you know, growing up over there and just seeing, like it was normal, it was normal for people to be collecting wood and I didn't think much of it. We could see because, you know, forests do get degraded. Not So the, unless it's like, you know, in certain places of the world where they're doing a lot of charcoal production, uh, most often fuel wood extraction doesn't result in like clear cuts. And so it's more about uh, degradation where they are lopping up off the branches, um, you know, taking or taking out the dead trees and taking out dead wood. So you, you still see a forest, but you don't see a very healthy forest if a lot of extraction has happened. And we also know from learning that dead wood on the forest floor helps in like biodiversity and other stuff. But Deadwood is one of the first things they pick up from the uh, forest floor because it's easy. And so, um, and not knowing the science behind it, we could just see the impacts, you know, of like these uh, villagers. Uh, and it's not saying that they're wrong because that's the only access to energy they have, right? And it's actually worse for their health to use that wood in an open fire than in uh, improved cook stoves, which later on I ended up working. But um, yeah, and so like it was that, connection I saw. And then when I started my PhD and I got the opportunity to work on a project, um, and it was in the Indian Himalayas, one of our, one of the two sites uh, with Hisham. And I was very excited because now I could actually look at what I had just known to be a part of life growing up and actually study it and see its impacts. And I think more than its uh, climate impacts, it has major impacts also on like health and, you know, air quality and oh, there's so many safety of women so it's really transitioning people, uh, households to cleaner cooking is, uh, and um, it's, it's a really good thing to do because if you think health perspective, you should do it. If you think climate perspective, you should do it. If you think degradation, you should do it, right? Uh, women's rights, uh, definitely, right? You should do it. And so, um, and it was really interesting to study that because people tend to assume we give them a clean cook stove and that means it's going to just have 
reduced impacts on climate and on forests because they're collecting less wood. But it was interesting to actually try to isolate that. So we actually like, um, I gave GPS loggers to the women and they like walked around in the forest. And so, you know, it was really interesting to actually see where they're going. And then we actually measured by species how much they were using on a daily basis. And after the intervention, after giving them cleaner cooking devices, uh, to see, did they really stop using forest wood or was it farm wood? And finally, that paper got published like a month ago. So it's very interesting to be able to study this, you know, things you just see and accept as this is how life is as a child. And then you get older and then you get to actually study it from a scientific perspective and its impacts on climate that, and, and nature that I so care about. Oh, it's amazing to hear and congratulations on that. I am thinking of two things. One is, um, you know, you in, in one of your papers, you mentioned uh, what are the alternatives for for people in these villages? Uh, what are the somewhat the low impact carbon based alternatives that they have? You use the Kyoto Protocol as, as, as a reference. Uh, there, there don't seem to be many, and so I'm I'm very I'm super interested in knowing more. Uh, if you realize uh, how impactful is that you uh, were able to provide uh, information uh, now, you know, because sometimes some people do a PhD but they're not able to publish for whatever mm -hmm. reason, or that particular village that you choose might not have been chosen if it wasn't for you. Mm -hmm. So there is a, uh, you, you are really, uh, you're really having an impact, uh, not only to those villagers, but to the knowledge creation. And I just wonder, do, do you, are you able to grasp in this fast, rapid life that everything happens so fast and it's so intense? Do you, do you realize uh, your impact? I mean, I in a way, I don't know if I realize my impact on, the individual communities, um, because, I mean, it's great. Like we, the reason we do research is right. We want to actually impact and we want to help people. Um, so I don't know how much of the work I did in understanding this would actually impact them other than getting them clean cookstoves, but it would help policymakers in, in showing that we really should increase this cookstove access. We need to make sure that this can be sustained cookstove access because, you know, people tend to use it and then go away from it. Uh, six months later, or to stack fuels. So um, their impact would be in getting access. But as an individual, I don't have the resources to provide that. But my research can inform policy and forest management where, you know, if people cannot fully move off, like in some of the colder regions, they still need wood to heat their homes, right? So in, in what do you do in those situations? Uh, do, you work, do you work with the forest service to do community forestry, to do sustainable forestry such that they still have heating wood? Right. And so um, I think that's how research makes an impact, not just by choosing these villages, but beyond these villages. I think it can impact a lot more villages where uh, the policymakers in terms of getting the access, where forest uh, managers can work with the villages to plant more trees, the kind they need, because they don't use every tree that's out there. They have species preferences. So kind of focus on those and, you know, uh, make maybe woodlots with, which they can use that reduces impact on more pristine nature areas. So, you know, I think there's definitely uh, a lot of direct impact and, you know, especially when you're working in what we call policy relevant research. And that's what I like to do is because it's, it's actually taking current issues and trying to find, uh, you know, 
applicable solutions, not just come up with solutions that you don't know if they can be applied, but actually can they be applied in the field and can they be beneficial to these people? I also wonder how is the process of consultation and consent given by uh, local communities, indigenous communities in the areas that you were working on? And also, what are your comments on this um, transition to quote-unquote cleaner energies when you take into account the social and environmental impacts that some of these big industries uh, seem to have? I think that's not just a problem with India. I think it's the problem we see everywhere. We see that with the indigenous lands here as well. You know, look at what's happening at SIC, look at what's happening with the pipelines. Indigenous people are not being consulted and the government's going ahead. It's similar things that happen. Um, you know, uh, it would be ideal to have what we call free, prior and informed consent of the communities where uh, this is happening. But I don't think we ever see that happening, uh, especially when it's large scale projects. If it was a small-scale hydro uh, or a small-scale utility, usually it's a lot of these uh, communities are part of it. Like, you know, they have village like biogas, uh, you know, energy. They have small-scale, like, you know, uh, rainwater harvesting at the village levels. But, I mean, and over there, it's the villages who, you know, or the NGOs and certain uh, community, like, organizations go to the villages and they work with them. But when it comes to, obviously, big dams and hydroelectricity, I think it's... Uh, what is it that in Canada they say that if it's for the interest of the nation, it doesn't need to go through the province or something like that. I don't know how much of community consultation was done because I've frankly been gone from India for 15 years now. And so I haven't, um, I don't, I'm not like really in the trenches out there to know other than my research areas and I can't speak, but uh, just assuming like, you know, what happens in the US, what happens in Canada, what, it's similar in India. You know, it's the villagers and Often it's those local communities that don't get consulted. And if something goes wrong, they are the ones who pay the price of that. And often they don't get all the benefits because I'm sure all that hydroelectricity that's being done isn't likely going straight to that village. It's feeding into a grid. And for all you know, the villages surrounding it might not even have electricity access. You know, we don't, we don't have 100% access in India. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting um uh, situation. And I think this is where worldwide we need to do better as uh, either settlers on land like we are here or uh, just natives to that land, but working with communities who are surrounding where these projects are going. Yeah, I completely agree. And so let me bring you to maybe one year ago now, I don't know, but when this possibility came to you. So you were uh, a recent uh, Canadian citizen and you ran for office for an MLA position. So I want to ask you two things about that to start. One is that what is an MLA in very simple terms? And, and also how was for you, because I, I was looking you know, in the 2020 Indian general uh, elections was, uh, and, and pretty much any news I came across about political landscape in India is male dominated, it seems. Mm -hmm. So how did you 
decided and how, how were you empowered to run with that uh, cultural impression? Yeah, it's so an MLA is basically the, a member of legislative assembly and uh, we there's two levels, right? At the federal level, it's called the parliament and you're a member of parliament or an MP. At the provincial level, it's the legislative assembly in BC, I think they call it uh, and, uh, like a provincial something else in um, Ontario. But and so as a member of legislative assembly, I am working with the BC government and for that you know you have to you're obviously as all elected officials you're representing representing your constituency and we call those ridings um in canada things i had to obviously uh, learn uh, before i decided to run but i think making the reason i ran was is you know as a climate scientist as a person working on climate and energy policy for work um actually for so all the cook stove access and all in india was my phd work in the last two years, I've really been working on oil and gas emissions uh, in North America and really focusing on uh, Canada in my research and looking at these you know, emissions and its climate impacts and a need for a just transition away to cleaner sources. And, and it's not just for our climate, but frankly, if we want to have a stable economy, it's for economics reason, economic reasons because you can't really, like, you know, it's an age-old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but that's kind of what I feel Canada is doing. And so we really need to diversify. And just seeing the promises made after governments, after governments at all levels, be it provincial or federal across the world. You know, we see this, they make promises for towards in elections like, you know, Trudeau promised the Just Transition Act still hasn't come into uh, effect. Or, you know, the BC NDP promised uh, to shut down Site C and they were anti-fracking and they've gone ahead and actually increased uh, subsidies over the BC Liberals. So I just gave up. I was frustrated. I was frustrated with politicians not listening to science. I was frustrated with climate inaction. And I figured that, you know, if you if they're not going to listen to you, I figured I would just take the science to them. Don't they say, like, be the change you want to see in the world? And so I think that's really what forced me to get into it. I um, It wasn't about, I did not think that being a woman or a queer woman or an immigrant, at that point, it was purely what are you guys doing? <laughs> the science is clear. We need to work on this. Instead, you keep increasing, uh, you know, oil and gas production and, and doing this. And I was like, like you said, I was a recent citizen of Canada. And I was like, well, if we keep putting all our, banking all our money on Canadian oil and when it collapses, like our economy is going to be bad. And where will I go? I'm no longer an Indian citizen. I can't even run back there. So I really care about the future of this country. <laughs> and I wanted to succeed. And so... Uh, yeah, that's really what made me run. Um, and then and then once I ran, it was very interesting because just because of who I am, the representation of a queer woman of color, you know, running an immigrant, a recent citizen. It was very interesting because I had a lot of people then when I was running and actually since then who messaged me saying, um, thank you for running. Uh, you know, I finally felt represented in politics. I have never felt that they would do, or I've had other scientists and faculty message me saying, um, thank you, and I know you will do the right thing. And, you know, when needed, you're not going to be like, a, and, and that was really it. Like, we need to change traditional politics. And so I think that really gave me hope that, you know, I was doing it for the reason that I, I really wanted to see climate action. But by putting myself out there, I gave others hope as well. And I think that was really uh, interesting. Yeah, and when you were talking about the Indian political landscape, actually, um, I know people say all sorts of things about India, but when you think about it, we have had a female prime minister back in the early 80s. 
you know, and some of our very powerful chief ministers have been women. And there's like Mayavati and all these people in India. So we do actually have a lot of women in powerful uh, politics in India. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, you know, the whole thing that in the U.S. they're like, oh, how could a woman like be president? Like it's not ready for it. We had a prime minister back in the early 80s who was a woman. You know, so um, I think in India, it's very interesting. I know in the U.S. it becomes very like a woman running for politics. But from what I have seen, and I could be totally wrong, because obviously my circles are very different than village circles. But I don't think it's more of a male or female thing. I think it's more of a party thing uh, uh, in India. Like there's all, like I said, all these like um, really strong women politicians that I've seen. And so for me, I think being a woman wasn't the thing about running. I think for me, more worry was being queer. And how would that go in a public space, uh, right? But representation matters is what I've realized. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. And for the same reason, I feel like myself and many other graduate students living and studying at UBC were thrilled to see someone that we could relate to or being able to message you and, and trust. I, I think that one of the key things in politics is building that trust um, mm -hmm. with the constituents. I wonder if you have any uh, role models that help you in these, you know, big moments of your life, the, the graduate studies, uh, but also the political challenge. Like, uh, I mean, there are a lot of role models, right? Like when we are working in different fields of um, science, like, you know, most recently, like I'm really inspired by all the uh, scientists and especially the women scientists who are doing a lot of science communication. And, you know, I can't take one or two names because, you know, when I see like there's so many great women scientists out there and doing really good work. Um, but I think growing up and that was why I felt like I need to put myself out there is I I couldn't find a role model that looked or, like me or I could connect with, you know, and and that's been lacking. And I feel we need more of that. And I think it's really great that now there are women scientists doing a lot of science communication. There's a lot of like a. STEM, like queer STEM, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, talks and, and trying to elevate those voices. And it's great because, you know, while we all didn't have those people to look up to that we could identify with, I mean, of course, like I had a lot of other role models, but I definitely don't know of a queer woman of color who's a climate scientist, you know? And so I couldn't like connect with a role model like that. And so that is something we are lacking, but we're really building on. And, you know, there's the One Million Women in STEM initiative. There's the 500 uh, queer scientists or, you know, there's the queer in STEM. Uh, you know, there's all these different initiatives that are trying to amplify these uh, women, these queer, these, uh, you know, people of color, uh, BIPOC voices. And I think that's very important. I wonder if um, you as a climate scientist have, um, like, what are the main barriers for this to continue to happen? Like not having enough representation of BIPOC, LGBTQ2 plus communities. What do you think are, are the main barriers still? Because we haven't yet balanced that out. Yeah, I think, in, I think it's to do with, like we, you know, with all the BLM protests and all that we saw, 
they brought up this whole thing of the systemic racism. And I think it's the systems that were created to, uh, you know, just build on privilege. And if you didn't have the privilege to like put your foot on early in the door, you kind of like got left out. And then it's very hard to play catch up later on. And I think we're really changing that now. You know, there are a lot more coming in. And so even though now we, are, we say right now, like we don't see a lot of like uh, women or BIPOC people in um, high pos higher positions in academic departments, I feel like that's going to change soon because, you know, it takes time to get promoted to that level and it wasn't being done. But now we've got a lot of incoming great uh, diverse applicants and, and candidates that are now coming up. And, you know, I feel like in the next five, six years, we're going to really see a change. And I think that will be good because um, when I was doing research, like, you know, when I'm doing oil and gas research or when I was doing research in India, um, lived experiences really matter. You know, no matter what we say, those lived experiences of a diverse community really help you understand science. Like when I was in the Indian Himalayas and people said something, I understood what they meant because I grew up in a similar area. I understood their needs or like their superstitions. But if it was a, let's say some white man from a, a white country going in to do that research, he would have had no connection to the land, no connection to understanding what the people were saying. And, you know, a lot gets lost in translation. And I think uh, that is why it's very important and in the academic space. And when it comes to the political sphere, uh, we definitely need more representation because you, I can guarantee if you look at our MLAs and MPs and take the percentage, we do not reflect the actual percentage of our population. And isn't the job of our elected rep representatives to actually represent us? And so if we actually do not have enough diversity in our politicians, um, obviously they're going to continue to withhold, uh, uphold uh, systems that have served privilege and not the underprivileged if we cannot get them up there because their lived experiences say privilege works. It doesn't say privilege doesn't work, right? Unless one of us gets up there and says, no, when, you, when we need to have this social justice lens in everything we do, just like we say in every going forward in every policy that's made or law that's made, we should have an environmental lens. We should also have a social justice lens. You know, if we're going to put in um, and that's one of my major worries is like, you know, the renewable energy is going to become like the next oil and gas in a way where governments will go ahead and push these projects on people without consulting with them. You know, we already did a big land grab when it came to coal and oil and gas. Let's not do another land grab and let's not forget people's rights and their justice when we do this transition. Let's support them. Let's help them build these utilities, you know, like small scale indigenous utility, uh, renewable utilities and clean energy. But let's not just go say we're taking over this land of yours and putting in a damn wind farm because that's just another land grab. Right. So we need to make sure we have this environmental and social justice lens for every decision we make going forward, because that's essential. Yeah, and I really like you mentioning how you could grasp what the villagers, for example, were saying. And I think that that's, you know, what are the narratives that are chosen whenever we communicate science or we promote a project? I, I think that it's very important that we recognize that there are so many narratives that not only are not visible, but sometimes are twisted. I, I kept thinking on me bringing up the comment on, on the political landscape of India because I was using the information I got from the news, but I was not reflecting on who is actually providing the scope of the, the editorial mm -hmm. advice on what news are 
you know put out there yeah it, i think it's, it's always good to like to do a check-in on what how are we feeding our own narratives <laughs> What would you have liked to hear when you were growing up? And perhaps if I can add to that, what has been a really important support for you? Well, I mean, when I was young, right? Like I cared about the environment, I cared about climate, but back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have a lot of opportunities, especially for women in India. You know, I couldn't, I would have loved to be a wildlife warden or things like that. And there wasn't a lot of um, information or opportunities or spaces created for that. And so, you know, it was, it came down to just like everybody did doctor, engineer or business. And so I was like, well, definitely not doctor, engineer, let's do business. And then I was like, I'll make money and open animal shelter homes. But I really wish like, you know, as a young person, like I knew there could be options and I didn't come across those opportunities until I was like selling my soul in corporate America. And then I realized, wait, I'm in the US and suddenly by then the world had opened up and I could become a scientist without having done science in high school, which is, you know, which I didn't even know could exist. But I think it would be that as just knowing that, you know, you don't need to give up your passion just because you don't have the opportunities at that time. There are opportunities you can create and the world is changing. I like, I wanted to do something for nature and climate my whole life out with animals. And I totally put that on the backseat because that was what society told me is not what makes money. You know, like uh, society makes you feel like you need to, to be successful, you have to be rich, which is not true. I have realized that when I had money working in corporate, I was actually some of the most unhappiest of my life. Then as a poor grad student, I have been some of the happiest of my life. Right. So money obviously doesn't equal happiness, but society and people around us make us truly believe that. Right. And I think that's what we need to. We need to encourage people to do what they love, because that's really what matters at the end of the day. Because if you want to be successful, you're not going to be successful. You know it. Doing a Ph.D., you can't spend seven years doing something you don't you really don't feel for. You're not going to make it through. Yeah, Even when you really feel for doing something. Like I'm really passionate about environment. It doesn't mean it doesn't have its own mental health challenges even then. So imagine when you're not passionate about it to push you through those challenges, right? So I think that's something I would have loved to know. And I want people to know is, you know, just don't go by what society expects of you because I tried doing that and it didn't help. I tried listening to society and being straight. I obviously didn't work for me. If anything, it made me more, you know, mentally depressed. I listened to society and tried to be in business and be successful or selling my soul. It made me unhappy. So, you know, I, and that's the thing. I think that's, again, what we were talking about, these systems, right, that uphold certain kinds of privilege. It's like that straight privilege of rich, straight privilege. That's what people wanted me to become. But that's not who I am. Right. And so I think that's really very important. And, and in that way, my family's been very supportive. You know, like uh, when I left business, like, one fine day, like suddenly quit and decided to do something else. They were very supportive. When I was doing a PhD, they've been very supportive and helped me because, you know, my funding ran out towards the end and they like, it's expensive to send money from India because of the, and you know, exchange rate. And it's not like we're rich, but they said, this is what you like to do. Don't worry about paying your expenses. You know, they've supported me when I decided to run for politics. They were like, well, you know, my father, I said, don't get mad at me. I'm thinking of running for politics. And he, my father said, we need more people like you out there. 
you know he's like because you know at the end like i know you're doing it for the right reasons i'm not doing it because i want a political career and i want to make money and be a corrupt politician which is a very like a corrupt politician is just normal in india and so you know but that's i'm doing it because i really want to see change i want to see systemic change and i wanted to change for environment i wanted to change for the marginalized and for the bipoc so i think that would be what i would tell people like just go for that and frankly i am amazed by the little involvement by people like in india we're a highly uneducated country and ev- like we still have so much interest in politics and everybody shows up to vote and then you have this educated country here and like people don't even care about like we have what like a 40 50% voter turnout like i'm like come on people say we don't like to be involved in politics you step out on the street politics impacts your life especially as if you're a non white male politics impacts your life it impacts on the decisions that are made as a woman about your body they impact as a queer person your rights to exist and your rights to job as a person of color it really impacts you about again your career and your success so how can you ignore that life is political and i think the reason we have bad politicians is because we're not putting up the right ones because people say i don't want to get involved in politics but no please do because then actually you'll have a representative you want not somebody that's chosen by the ones who don't care or like the few who care right they don't have that much power yeah that's that's so true and and i really like you saying like that you were the change you wanted to see i just hope that we can have the opportunity to, to have leaders like you when when we rationalize it's hard to understand why we haven't yet because it's there like we have the reasons and we there is people running for these positions so the least we can do is to support them well i think some of that is also i think there's both right one is supporting them the other is we've not had a lot of you know marginalized people run because the systems have been created to keep them out and we've seen it you know when some do run there's so much so many trolls out there and so much hate for people that uh, a lot of people don't want to put themselves out there I took that risk and I said I was willing to do it and I spoke to my partner and said I'm doing this because I really feel and I figured how much I how passionate I am about for change doesn't like it's not going to deter me from all the trolls out there but a lot of people aren't ready to take on that kind of abuse and hate and it happens I mean just go to any female politician's twitter and any comment they make just look at all the stuff that's written it doesn't matter which party across party lines Yeah, that's that's a painful truth. We're very close to the end, and I don't want to end this conversation without asking you how is your academic and political life nowadays. And I'm very interested in both, but really want to hear about the political challenge that you went through. All the MLA, you know, I I I watch you in some of the debates and all of that, and I was like, oh my god, um, how did that transform you? Because I'm sure that you were not the same person after that, for better or worse, you know, because it was so intense. Yeah. So there's the two, right? Like I I'm juggling. 
academia, as a scientist, and I'm juggling my political life. And so uh, what I've been working on for my academic life is, like I said, oil and gas emissions and just transition. And it's got me really fired up and trying to find solutions to this. And so what I'm working on right now is a really cool project with the Environmental Defense Fund and Resources for the Future. And it's actually a we're going to get this uh, report to the U.S. congressional staff. And it's really looking at mapping uh, revenue from oil, uh, fossil fuel production in the U.S. across different states and into state budgets and how much of it actually comes from this. Because when we talk of a transition, right, we first want to see what revenue is coming in. And if we can't, then figure out how that revenue can be filled from other sources. And right? because at the end of the day, government needs money to fund public education, fund, you know, health and all of those things. And then that's the project with them, but I'm taking it further and actually looking at where that revenue is flowing and how much of each of these sectors of public health and, you know, uh, different, uh, uh, you know, education comes from directly from uh, oil and gas production. And uh, so that's very interesting because I think that is directly applicable to policy and that's going to start showing us uh, kind of like a roadmap as to when we start planning this just transition. And then when it comes to the political front, um, like I said, I mean, I got my citizenship in like uh, literally a year ago now, and I never thought I would be running for politics, but, uh, you know, things happened and I ran and I, like I said, when I ran, I was like, it was more, I was doing it more because I wanted to see more signs, but it's very suddenly changed to I'm doing it for people around me and I'm representing them uh, just because of, how I felt. And it was very humbling experience to uh, realize that, you know, A, like I said, I ran, but because I didn't think of the consequences because that weren't going to deter me, but realizing that why other people don't do this, it's very hard to put yourself out there and be, uh, you know, everything about your life is like, can be, is fair game for your opponents and for everybody out there, you know? Um, and so, it was very interesting. And like, you know, the debates, like you said, um, I had never done a political debate in my life. So it was a very steep learning curve. Uh, it was a crash course in political science, science Canadian politics, uh, political debating, uh, how to run a campaign because it was a snap election. And so pretty much one of one friend of mine, my partner and I ran my whole campaign and uh, figuring it out as we go. But luckily, you know, we're PhDs and we know where to find information. So it was a lot of research on running a campaign and running a campaign. And I've only heard good things uh, about how we ran it. And so I think it was very useful and it really gave me hope because I literally had people come and say, you know, thanks for giving us hope in politics again. You know, thanks for changing politics. Thanks for like, no, you know, we know you'll do the right thing. Thanks for feel, making me feel represented. And now, like, I feel it's more of a duty of mine to do that for them and, you know, like represent the marginalized. And so I'm not putting away my political careers yet between you and me. I'm considering federal if Trudeau calls um, a snap election. But first, I would have to get nominated um, from my area to be the candidate for the Green Party. So uh, let's see. I'm sticking around uh, for now in politics because um, I really... I think there's a lot of change that can be done with one person being inside. I might not be able to change the system, but I can create enough noise and raise the right uh, issues and, you know, the, ask the right questions to get other people thinking and to get more people out there who haven't been involved in politics to think about these issues, you know, especially the marginalized who don't feel represented. And I feel that's one of the reasons they don't engage as much, because if I don't see somebody I can connect with, I'm not going to really follow what's going on. 
But I feel like, you know, if we can get more BIPOC, more queer, more, uh, you know, representation into politics to actually look like our population, <laughs> you know, I think people would feel a little more engaged because then they'll be bringing up the right questions, right? You know, a lot of people aren't getting involved because they're like, anything that's being discussed is probably not impacting those people directly. It's because there's nobody speaking for them. And so I feel we need a voice. We need like an insider person there, right? As marginalized people, as immigrants, as people of women of color, as queer people. And I'm hoping that I can provide that inspiration for more to stand up and run in future elections. Because if they feel like if I could do it, anybody else can do it. I'm really hoping that whether I win or not, it creates that platform and it starts to take that space, create that space and makes it safer for others who are as passionate about change to step up and do what is needed. No, that's amazing. And I feel like there is also, sometimes it tends to happen that people in politics just stay there forever. <laughs> so it's also good for, for the politics uh, to renew the people bringing ideas and bringing new ways. Yeah, it's like, I think we the youngest person in our legislative assembly in BC is 35 or 36 years old. Um, the future is for the young and we're really messing it up, you know? And why do we not have more youth? We need young people. We need their representation, right? Like, think about it. Like, I don't even know at the federal level, I'm assuming it's probably a similar age, um, but, you know, we really need more people, not just also voting and being political, but also stepping up and saying, I'm stepping up because if nobody else does, I'm going to do it. We really need that. Thank you so much, Deviani. We we were already super inspired by, by you, by your career. Uh, and I really hope that people can connect with you. We will be posting your Twitter handle. And so please follow Deviani and everything that she's doing. Thanks, Estefania. It's been great. And, you know, like I said, I'm not anything unique or great. Um, I just feel really strongly for change and I really hope other people step up, uh, be it in science, be it in politics. We need more people who are passionate about what they do. And um, yes, please, any, I'm always open to reaching out to people. So message me, contact me, always here to help. Bye-bye. Tuning into the forest, stories of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in nature. Ororé, ore, ore, arumaya. Ororé, ore, ore, arumaya. <laughs>